Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now recently there have been a couple of events, two big events, which would appear to be very discouraging for those of us who are worried about cultural issues or the culture war if you want to call it that. First of all we have apparently a new president in the United States, President Biden, who in fact has really barely talked about things cultural during his campaign. And here we had a what appeared to be a, a turnaround at Downing Street and the adoption of what they call a less combative approach to cultural issues in favour of a more woke environmental agenda. So what does this actually mean for those of us who care about issues such as identity politics, free speech and indeed the increasing dominance of wokeism in our institutions? Well, to discuss this today, I'm very pleased we have the author and emeritus professor of sociology at the University of Kent, Frank Ferredi, and from the New Culture Forum, historian and commentator, Rafe Hadelmanku. Thanks, Rafe. Um, I want to start by asking, really, uh, one question, and that is that before the election in America, uh, some people were saying that actually Trump was the only person who was really there standing between us and the complete collapse of Western culture. I mean, was that pure hyperbole, do you think? And do you think that, that really those people should be worried now? I think it was a hyperbole, especially in the sense that uh, Trump was often all talk and no action. You will recall that even in his last few years, despite uh, demanding to be heard and speaking up for Western culture, Trump was losing the war. So for example, the uh, uh, biggest setback as far as I can tell in America was the way in which the culture wars had become very pervasive in sports. And you had this in football, American football, where suddenly everybody was taking the knee and suddenly all these you know, sporting stars were coming out on what I see as the wrong side of the culture wars. And this was a major defeat because sport was the one area where until very recently identity politics and you know, political correctness was you know, very, very weak, very, very feeble. That's changed tremendously in the last year and a half and Trump could do nothing about it. And I could give you a lot more examples in America, the way in which uh, Trump, uh, although he appeared to be you know, on the right side of the angels was nevertheless quite unable to do very much. But nevertheless, having said that, I think what is a major problem is that having lost the election, the people on, you know, who are fairly woke and who are, you know, in a sense, the, at the center of cultural elitist politics are feeling supremely confident. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only are they feeling completely confident about what's going on in Britain, uh, in America, they're saying that they're gonna teach people like us who are Brexiteers a lesson, they're saying that they're going to teach the Poles and the Hungarians a lesson. They, they're saying that Bolsano in Brazil is a cultural or an environmental outlaw and they're going to teach them a lesson. So in that sense, they really feel emboldened. They think that the populist moment has gone and that from here onwards, things are going to be easier. I, I don't think that they're right, but nevertheless, the balance has shifted in the wrong direction. And I think the very fact that in Downing Street there's been all these noises about being uh, kinder and, and being softer and being more uh, uh, inclined towards dialogue is at least in part an attempt to appease Biden 
as it is to do with the personality clashes oh, right. that are taking place within Downing Street. I see. That's basically, so you're saying it's almost a ploy. It's, it's not really real. Uh, no, it, it is real in the sense that, you know, sort of it, it's a decision that they realize that, you know, that Britain needs to be on the right side of Biden. Yeah. And to some extent, some of the changes kind of reflect that. I think what's happening is wrongly interpreted as, as kind of a, a group of women who are very sensitive winning out against a bunch of bullying men. I, don't, I think that's a, that's a Netflix narrative rather than reality. I think what you have is, a, is an accommodation to the new reality on the part of Downing Street. I mean, the, re the, the reference to the role of sports is interesting, isn't it? Because only a year ago, people were suggesting that it was sports that was actually going to be the scene where the, the pushback against wokery was going to be most visibly seen because of the obvious ludicrous situation of men, trans, trans women, men actively engaged in female sports and winning prizes when they clearly had an advantage. And yet we've seen in the space of a few months how soon that changed with people taking, taking the knee. But what we really have now is such a strange situation. You know, expect the unexpected Oscar Wilde, you know, once quipped. And that's never, I think, been more relevant than today. And by that, I mean coronavirus, because pandemics are very powerful. You know, the, the Black Death you know, led to an unexpected rise in, 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 uh, in workers' wages because of a shortage of the labor force. And an unexpected casualty of the coronavirus has been the conservative pushback in the culture wars. Because, you know, look back to January and February, where even on this show we were discussing it, and I was very optimistic about the hopes for a conservative pushback in the culture wars because Trump was riding high in the polls. The economy was going hammer and tongs. You had very low unemployment. In this country, Boris had just secured an 80-seat majority, such a large majority that it was almost inconceivable that he wouldn't have won also in five years. So we had 10 years here with Cummings, the mastermind behind, mastermind behind Boris, to put in place his agenda to try to reverse that long march through the institutions, be it the BBC or the civil service. And things seemed about as good as they could be for the Conservative side after a long time when things hadn't been. And then out of left field, we had coronavirus. And I think Trump was actually doing very good things. I mean, the speech that Trump gave on July the 4th uh, at Mount Rushmore, declaring war in the culture wars, if I can say that, was ex exceptional. And I think he understood what could be done there. And unfortunately, Trump and Cummings have been the victims of coronavirus because they weren't prepared for this situation. And I say Trump and Cummings, not Trump and Johnson, because Johnson has never been a conservative, truly. Right? He's always been a liberal. Trump also was an old Democrat li liberal. It was basically Steve Bannon, his advisor, now gone, and Dominic Cummings, who were the architects of what could have been the conservative fight back in the culture wars. And Bannon's long gone, but Trump never forgot his lessons. And now with Cummings gone, I see that that's, that's completely evaporated. And so it's a, it's a sorry state of affairs that we're in, we're in as a result. So basically, you're, you would agree with Frank that they are supremely confident, if you like, the, the woke karate, for want of a better, because they see this as a kind of vindication. I mean, I, I, I was fully prepared to be really sort of down about the election. I think what stopped it was that this, this idea that somehow it was closer, for example, than we thought, but also that the idea of Trumpism, for want of a better word, uh, was now something that existed in its own right, isn't it? Well, I, th I think you're entitled to feel a little bit optimistic in the sense that what the election revealed is that uh, the people that voted for Trump and the momentum behind it was not just a, a momentary episode, that there is a substantial number of people, a very large block of people, 
who until very recently felt they had no voice, who feel much more able and confident to express themselves. And I think that the very fact that the polls proved to be so wrong uh, because they were expecting such a big Biden landslide indicates that uh, even now, despite the fact that Biden has won, not everything has been lost because compared to five years ago, when these voices did not exist, or at least were not heard, we now have a, 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 a reality where, where people recognize that you just simply cannot ignore millions and millions of people, not just in America, but throughout the world, who have, have very strong views about the, de the denationalization of their culture, the attempt to uh, denature their human relationships, the attempt to alter every single values that uh, come from their ancestors. People you know, are really are speaking out against that. And that's been a very important uh, development. But I think it is interesting that in many, many ways, the culture war is slowly shifting to Europe. I think the European Union and its, and its decision to make uh, what they call European values on, on, on sexual relations, on family life, really important, make it foundational, and insist that everybody abide on that, is far more provocative than anything that I've seen. It's the first time I've seen the EU demanding that unless you accept our values on family adoption, unless you accept our values on marriage, then you are breaking the law, and therefore you are you know, outside, the, you know, outside where you should be. So I think in that sense, the American situation is now been uh, exported to Europe. And I think you know, it's in Europe that we're going to see the really big battles in the period ahead, because in Europe, the situation is much more, you know, much more finely balanced. There's a lot of countries in Europe, Italy and elsewhere, where people are getting really, really angry at, at, at being, uh, in a sense, uh, prevented from having their birthright. Uh, being uh, being recognised as important, but I think but people are very very angry here, aren't they? I mean, the difference is, is it doesn't appear to be expressed, or rather, it's expressed. We all hear it expressed, uh, but it doesn't seem to have a political outlet, does it? In the way that other European countries certainly. No, and and Boris Johnson has politically betrayed those people who elected him. He was given a mandate by by the working classes. We've had a seismic shift in this country. Every generation goes through a, a shift. The Labour Party no longer represents the working class. The Labour Party is now the party of the university educated elites, of the, of the Wokarati, of the urban classes. And it's, and it's now, you know, the, what, what once was blue Labour, it's now the urban, it's now the, it's now the, it's now the working classes who are the, the, the backbone of the Tory party. And yet it's elite hasn't realised it yet, and you've got this almost sort of, you know, Louis Louis the Fourteenth or Louis the Sixteenth in, in, in Versailles, completely disconnected from the reality on the ground. And it was, as I've said for months on this programme, it was only Cummings who really understood that fully. The degree to which the Tory Party is no longer the Tory Party of yesteryear, and you know, watching something like The Crown on television, you you saw how Thatcher, when she came to power in '79, had to have a night of the long knives, and against overwhelming odds and the opposition of her cabinet and the Tory old guard, you know, the, the, the establishment of the time, she brought in a huge shift and change in terms of bringing in people who understood the economic necessity of change. Johnson needed to do that with the cultural war that we're now facing. The, two the 2020s are about culture rather than the economy of the 1980s, and he's failed miserably in that, and I don't think they understand fu fully 
the implications that that has, not only in terms of losing support to Labour, but now with the departure of Cummings and anybody who actually understood the need to stand up for the family, to stand up for community, to stand up for democracy, to stand up for patriotism and old-fashioned values, they've now opened up once again a gap that they had sealed for people like Farage or the, or the Reclaim Party and others. Um, and they've, they've shot themselves in the foot over that. Is it, it, it's interesting to me because it, it, when Downing Street came out with this, oh, we're going to, well, they didn't officially, but this is the message, right? That somehow we're going to be less com sort of combative on these issues. You sort of turn around and think, well, how were you actually really confronting them anyway? I mean, what were they doing that was so kind of upfront about it? I mean, it, it seems to me that whereas, say, Trump did his speech at Mount Rushmore and talked about taking away funding, critical race theory and all of this, we, you know, Boris Johnson had to be kind of dragged to say anything about the Churchill statue, didn't he? Well, you know, the bar has been set very, very low. So poor old Priti Patel is now the nation's bully. And by that, all that they mean is that she basically said, do this and do that, you know, basically acting like any leader does in circumstances. That's bullying. Um, Johnson, as you, as you rightly suggest, has, you know, so talked a bit about doing stuff in that. And I think Liz Truss was beginning to challenge some of the transcultural stuff that's being institutionalized and was promoted by the May, May government. So that was a nice step, you know, probably the only step in the right direction. But other than that, you know, uh, I was actually quite shocked by the way in which the government, um, in a sense, adopted almost like a technically neutral language when they talked about the Churchill statue and all these other things. I mean, you would have thought a conservative government would have used that as an opportunity to stand up for the icon of the nation, and they could have mobilized popular support around standing up for this is who we are, Right, this is, this is what being British is really all about. But instead of using that as an opportunity, they just kind of treated that as a kind of mild public order issue that could be dealt with by the mayor of London or, or some of his underlings. So I think you're right to say that uh, you know, there was a lot of all talk and no action and not even a lot of talk about it. Because I think what was very interesting about Johnson is that even when it came to Brexit, you, know, you had this kind of performance, we'll get Brexit done and everything else. But, the, but you knew in your heart of hearts that when push came to shove, you know, sort of uh, Johnson wasn't going to say, you know, do or die. He wasn't going to sort of have a clear red line. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that to me has been a big tragedy. I think the issue now, the most immediate issue to worry about or to discuss and to argue about is Brexit. Mm -hmm. Because I think that uh, the scenarios that have been outlined are ones that you know, may well lead to the watering down of what Brexit really means. I think we're living in, a, in this kind of new era where there's a lot of pressure to compromise and to kind of fall in line with the EU wisdom of what, what really should be done. And I, and I think that uh, a lot of the effort in terms of the kind of cultural concerns and conflict has really got to focus in on this just to make sure that you know, betrayal is of the agenda. And of course the problem now is those key m members from the Vote Leave team who were embedded at the heart of Downing Street have now left, you know, Dominic Cummings and, 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 and Kane. Um, and if you think about it, just in general, just expand it beyond that, look at the last few months, look at the opportunities, as, as Frank's quite rightly said, the Churchill statue. You know, Ch Johnson wrote his biography of Churchill, right? Very bad book that it was as well. 
as well. Um, you had the, 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 the ban on Rule Britannia being sung in the Royal Albert Hall. You've got now these golden opportunities of the, the hate crime bill that's coming in. So this is an opportunity for a free speecher to really seize, seize the mantle. And, yet, and, then you, and then you have him you know, basically saying recently that it was devolution that was Tony Blair's biggest mistake. That revealed his true colours. Immigration, everyone knows, was the biggest failure of Tony Blair or the biggest crime committed by Tony Blair. And the fact that he said that it was devolution really shows that he actually isn't a card-carrying member of the Conservative Brigade who want to see a reversal in, in the culture wars. And the fact that he has misstepped so often on all of these core issues, I think, reveals his true colours. And of course, now what you have is you have um, the expulsion of what was the, the one team in Downing Street who could have actually tried to steer the ship of state back onto a, a more sensible path. And you've now got the old you know, the old elites of, the, of, the, of, the, of West London, who basically are for green technology, who are for trans rights, who are in favour of everything which basically is a dud as far as those people who voted in the Red Wall are concerned. I mean, basically, Cameroons, as we used to call them, it, it, you, you kind of reverted to that in a way. The thing about this as well is that when they talk about cultures, when I speak to Conservatives, or should I say Tories, uh, 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 about them, they see it, and this came out in this kind of Downing Street uh, report, really. They see it as an issue, a bit like devolution. Do you know, they, they sort of see it as this, oh, we're going to like go easy on that for a while. Um, whereas people like us, if you like, or most people I know, see this in a far more fundamental way as something which is really seriously happening before our eyes. You know, some people even talk now of a kind of quiet revolution going on. You know, like a like a coup. They don't seem to see it. And do you think that they don't? That whether it's Boris Johnson or the Tory party, they see it in terms of the extremes of political correctness. That it's just nonsense that we've just got to get rid of. Do you think? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I've been collecting a lot of material on this, and over the last twenty years, the number of times I've heard people say, "Oh, Frank, uh, identity politics is finished. It's now gone." Oh, Frank, you're, you're exaggerating what you say about political correctness. It's now gone. Oh, Frank, this is, this is just a temporary moment. And I've done so many interviews where the guy shoves the mic in front of my face and says, do you think this will be around in a couple of years? The implication being that this is a momentary phenomenon. And what they don't realize, and this is something that is quite surprising for people who call themselves conservative, is that culture is not like you know, something you buy in a candy shop, you know, well, I guess a bit of culture. Culture is about a way of life. And that way of life seeps into everything that we do. Culture is about the way, you know, the stories you tell your children. It's what the young generations are brought up on. The narratives about what it means to be British or what it means to be a human, they are kind of foundational, right? They're the basis on which our public and political life is conducted. And if that issue is not really addressed, an issue that pervades in every domain of human experience, then what you're left with is a situation where you're occasionally reacting to its most extreme symptoms. Yeah, yeah. So you hear a BBC commentator saying something really stupid, and you kind of react against that. And fish people, people. We had fish people this week, didn't we? It's yes. Not fishermen, fish people. Exactly, fish fingers. You know, yeah. Fish, yeah. So you have, you have this bizarre language you know, games, and people know this is silly, and they kind of react against it, and they think, well, I've done my bit in the culture war, not realizing that those more irrational expressions of that are the least of our problem. 
You know, the real problem that we have is what is it that kids learn in schools? What is it that students learn in universities? What is it that the BBC communicates into our dining rooms and our bedrooms every single day? What is Netflix all about? These are powerful messages that motivate people and, people and have important political consequences. And if you're just sitting with your arms folded, completely indifferent, and you're going on about green technology instead, then you're really missing the big picture. And the problem here, of course, is that the long march through the institutions has been so successful and that they are the, the, the people who are enact, enacting all of these changes are now in such positions of power uh, and the entire bubble of Westminster and, and elsewhere is now so seeped in with, with, the, with this uh, alternative culture that they can't see the fact that they are actually the culture warriors. They tend to regard us all as being peculiar, silver-hatted, tin-hatted people who are reactionaries, always banging on and obsessed by the culture wars. We aren't the ones obsessed by the culture wars. We're merely trying to defend the status quo. For us, we would like life to be business as usual. But when you have attacks on democracy, when you have attacks on our culture, when you have a rewriting of our history, when you're told essentially that the color of your skin means that you are a racist without any, you know, without any personal intent on your part, that's the reaction. It is actually, you know, the cultural war is being waged on us and we're not obsessed by it. We're simply reacting in an, in an effort to, to try to bring some common sense back into the picture. That's, that's a really important point because the number of articles published recently that basically accuse the right of starting the culture war, mm -hmm. or basically, you know, The Guardian uh, is really good at this, you know. Trump has initiated the culture war or somebody, and basically what they're really saying is that the reaction to what has been started elsewhere is what the culture war is. Whereas what they're doing, when they're, for example, saying that you gotta use this pronouns, when they're saying that this is a word you can no longer use, that's just common sense. But the reaction to the culture war, so the way they're kind of depicting it is that we're the cultural warriors. Whereas in fact, all, we, you know, all we're forced to do is to basically react to a crusade against the customs that you know, our parents lived by and the traditions that were part of our heritage. We're just standing up for them because it's being under attack. And I, and I think that that kind of reversal of reality is so powerful, it's so important to expose for what it is in order to have a you know, grown-up discussion on the subject. Do you think actually, do you, actually you alluded to it about COVID earlier, that it's not, it's not a conspiracy or anything, but it does feel like this is being used as an opportunity uh, to further certain agendas. I mean, the, the, the BBC, you know, actually said, didn't it, with the last night at the proms, they sort of said, well, uh, basically, the fact there's not going to be any audience might be a good time to refresh everything. And that's something you're sort of seeing, I feel, quite a lot, you know, that somehow this is being used people are atomized, aren't they? Would you agree or not? Or do you think that's going too far, Rafe? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not so sure because they've actually had po polls taken where people's um, political spectrum and their, their adherence to things such as masks and so forth are actually pretty evenly split, despite what, what, what one might think. But certainly, um, in terms of things like the BBC, there's a, cl there's a clear agenda where if I can say it, the face mask is a covering <laughs> to conceal a, wide, a, broad, a wider and a broader agenda there, we were, clearly COVID was being used to try to expunge from, from the repertoire uh, parts, of, parts of Britain's you know, nautical heritage. The way that I see it uh, is that it's not a conspiracy, but there are pre-existing movements yeah. before the pandemic who are using the 
COVID situation to further address, a very good example is the way the mental health lobby has never ceased talking about the way in which there's going to be a mental health crisis because of uh, the fact that people are locked up and, and therefore their, their kind of uh, therapeutic agenda of medical intervention, medicalizing our life is, is really, really, really strong. Similarly, you have the environmentalist lobby going on about the fact that it's really brilliant. Isn't it? It, the fact that there are no cars being driven really shows you the future of what life could be like in a, you know, sort of in a carless kind of a world. So what's happening is that you know, pre-existing uh, sort of uh, causes are being piggybacked on the back of COVID. And, and that, I think that kind of, that's the way that I would see that. And uh, uh, I think there's a very genuine public health problem to which the response is very confused. But underneath that, all the things that happened before the pandemic are getting in, you know, sort of intensified. Well, intensified and sort of speeded up, you know, exactly. a bit like same thing as like shopping online. It's a cultural yeah. version of that, isn't it? Yeah. I think the scariest thing that this has shown us really, though, is the, the degree to which the British public, a vast majority of the British public, have been so docile and have acquiesced in, in, and, and willingly given away their liberties and freedoms and in which they seem to be perfectly happy to see the police um, overstep the mark and be excessively um, heavy-handed in terms of enforcing things. And if anything, it's really, <laughs> if there are agendas out there and if there are institutions looking, they're, they're seeing and witnessing how easy it is to actually remove from people their, their ancient rights and freedoms. I think actually that one thing that connected to that, you mentioned earlier about this law commission, these proposals, these are just proposals, but basically what is called some comment is that the idea of hate crime being extended into the home, i.e. that you can be prosecuted for something you say at home. Now, A, isn't it amazing that the Law Commission can even put this forward? And B, isn't it extraordinary that no one, Prime Minister Downward, sort of said, sorry, but just forget it, you know? And this is actually a thing that, given a few months' time, we might be discussing on this programme. Isn't that extraordinary? Well, it, I mean, it is, it's very worrying. Uh, I'm not surprised because uh, public intervention in, in, the f in family life has accelerated year by year and parental rights have been uh, circumscribed in all kinds of different ways about what you can and you cannot do. But I think the very fact that we now can no longer freely discuss whatever we feel like in, our, in the privacy of our own home is something that even in a totalitarian system, they would have been very careful to do that. I mean, basically, you know, uh, and I know this because I, I grew up in a totalitarian state. We used to have a situation where there'd be all this propaganda saying the children should, can denounce their parents, you know, and they're encouraging them to denounce the parents. But as it happened, very early occurred because I think most communities, the families were very, very strong and parents didn't really worry about their children denouncing them to their authorities. I'm much more worried about what's happening, particularly in Scotland, where they're handing out these leaflets to children about what a good thing it is to do that. But they don't use the word denounce, but they basically, again, use this very neutral language, you know, sort of very sensible language of what of you having to educate your parents, basically the, what, what what's saying, which I think is far more insidious than what used to exist in the Soviet Union in East Europe, where, which was like, you know, like kind of bullying a China shop approach. It's a much more subtle approach. I do think we have to really uh, sort of put a lot of resources 
a lot of effort into combating this because although it's becoming an accomplished fact in Scotland, it's also happening in Wales and it's only a matter of time before in England. Uh, so we're, you know, this is going to become a major cause and we have to be on alert and, and combat this. Absolutely, it's, it's, it's chilling, it's dystopian, and it needs to be called out for what it is. It's, it's, you know, in terms of Islam, it's the reintroduction of blasphemy laws that we haven't had for 20-odd for, for years in this country. And um, you only have to actually think to yourself of, of what the, the final stages in this are. I mean, this was the land of liberty, you know, this is, America was the inheritor of our freedoms and traditions of liberty. And how we can have a situation whereby, if Salman Rushdie had published the Satanic Verses in Scotland now, he probably would have been charged with a crime. Can you imagine that? So Salman Rushdie, whom the British government and others belatedly got behind and defended and is upheld as being somebody whose rights to free speech should be championed, those same governments conceivably would be the ones now arresting and charging him and throwing him in prison. It's an appalling state of affairs, you know. And this is when, you know, someone like Fr Macron is standing up there. Surely, even with Brexit, you know, how grateful Brexit would it have been, given that Macron is the one holding up the Brexit negotiations over fishing, if Johnson had actually stood by Macron as a champion of free speech, Macron might have been more inclined to be a bit more lenient and compromise a bit more on the fishing issues. I mean, there are just so many levels here on which Boris Johnson seems cack-handed and dishonest. And as I said, it all amounts to a, to a political betrayal. I think uh, it, it has been appalling it, with Macron as well. The way, as you say, that, uh, Boris Johnson didn't even mention Islamism by name. or It's all very, very sort of cloaked. Actually, race point there uh, about Macron really brings me quite neatly to Orban, who, when you uh, talk about you know, free speech and the lack of blasphemy laws or whatever, um, Orban is actually trying to do, many would say, actually to protect the, the, the culture in its entirety. Uh, you recently wrote about this, actually, didn't you? For Spiked, I believe, actually. For, that, that in fact, therefore, he is going to be completely demonised, is he not, or already has been, by the EU. Well, he's already demonised. I mean, uh, people often uh, equate him to being uh, you know, like a Hungarian Hitler. And hunger is often seen as being this horrible place. I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the fantasy picture of Hungary in the Western press is just unbelievable. The number of lies. It's meant to be very, very anti-Semitic. Whereas Budapest is probably the safest place for Jews to hang out in. You know, I mean, I always make the point that, you know, there are doesn't, there are loads of Jewish restaurants in Budapest. You don't have any policemen in front of them. You don't need them. You got them in Brussels. You got them in Paris, where you know there is a there are mer very major security issues. Um, yet hunger is presented in that kind of a way. And and I just think what has happened is that you know Orban, because he actually stands up on the values issues. That's the one thing that he's very determined about. Uh, is is regarded as a threat. By the EU. And the reason why it's regarded as a threat by the EU is not because of what goes on in Hungary. They don't care about Hungary. What they really care about is that very often what Orban says about Christianity or what Orban says about traditional values or about Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian tradition, whatever Orban says is something that a lot of people in the West also agree with but, are, uh, but feel inhibited about expressing or voicing because it they know it's going to be... Um, demonized or criticized. And I think that uh, the reason why, why Orban in particular has got this incredible uh, bad image is precisely because he's, he's regarded as somebody who's in a sense challenging the EU consensus 
on, on what you can say and what you cannot say and what values you can celebrate and what values you've got to pathologize. Here the sands are shifting slightly, however, in, in Orban's favor because it was, it was inconceivable before that he would have had any support for the ideas and, and the views of, that he's been espousing. But because of what's happened in France, Macron is now more amenable to it. Because of what's happened in Vienna, Sebastian Kurz is now more amenable to it. And the same thing is, is the case in Italy. And it looks increasingly as if it's Angela Merkel who is isolated and alone now in terms of adhering to this old EU mantra. What do you think is there for the outlook and this is a huge topic and we're, we're winding up but I mean you know one doesn't want to be endlessly pessimistic I find it very very difficult to be optimistic on these issues frankly when we're talking about you know people being you know prosecuted for what they might say in their own home and things but do you see any pushback in in Britain at all on these issues Frank? In Britain, I think what I see in Britain is there are a lot of people who are fed up, a lot of people who feel disappointed by the political system and the mainstream political parties. One thing I encounter quite a lot where I live down in Kent is people saying, you know, they, they use the expression, we need to have a new political party. They don't actually say what that means, but what they're really saying is that we need to have some other form of representation that will uh, uh, express our views and our interests. And I think there's a, a desire for something different. Uh, I, th I think what I'm really saying is that there's a profound legitimacy crisis in British society, something that we, we don't discuss in the press, but it's there all the time. And precisely because there's a legitimacy crisis, people in mainstream Westminster are trying to clamp, you know, clamp things down a little bit. But I'm reasonably optimistic in the sense that compared to 10 years ago, there are far more voices. I think you know, that's the legacy of Brexit. Whatever you think about Brexit and whatever is going to happen, I don't know. But it's left one legacy, which is that a lot of people have discovered that they do have a voice which can make a difference and c that can matter. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. So in that sense, um, I do feel that there is a lot to play for. You know, you're entitled to be pessimistic about some of the things that we've just been discussing. But at the end of the day, there is also the fact that, that f more than before, there's a sizable group of people who are trying to find a different way of dealing with the issues that we're doing, who s are seeing through what's happening in, the, in, the, uh, in, in mainstream politics and, and are therefore a very important resource or, 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 or movement, potential movement, for something positive happening on the cultural front in the future. There are reasons to have some optimism. In America, it's worth remembering that more people voted for Donald Trump than anybody else in American history, apart from Joe Biden himself. Uh, and Trump actually increased his share of the vote amongst blacks, amongst gays, amongst Hispanics. Biden didn't win that. People voted, you know, people voted against Trump's personality, but the causes and the issues that he stood for still remain even more relevant now. And this has been the shock for the left, I think, in seeing how many people voted for Trump 
uh, and there's no reason to think that, that, that Trumpism is here to stay. Whether he'll be the next person to do it or, you know, Donald Trump Jr. or somebody else, I think there's every reason to understand that had it not been for coronavirus, his agenda would have won. That's the American scene. And in this country, certainly I would say that it's the fact that you've got this new organization of NRG, the Northern Research Group in the Conservative Party, which, is put, which, is, which hopes to hold the heels of the Prime Minister to the fire over the Red Wall in much the same way that the ERG did for the European Union. And you have another group of MPs in the Tory party called Common Sense, who are trying to stand up against all of this wokery. And if they can finally, you know, s smack the Prime Minister around the chops and say, wake up to the reality of what's happening on the ground and where our new, uh, where our new centres of support are, then there is hope there. Whether it's him or the next person to come along, I think those are two reasons to be optimistic. Well, I certainly hope so. We're going to be talking about this obviously ongoing. There's no, no question about it. I, I, just, I would finish with one point, which is that uh, at least... Things are out in the open in an odd way, aren't they? People have played their hand. So, you know, when you talk about institutions and how they're trying to change the way that they run, and you now see the people, you now see who's running them. And I think that something is quite new, maybe. But thank you very, very much, Frank. Thank you very much, Rafe. Uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back uh, next time. And uh, in the meantime, please do subscribe, won't you, to Counterculture and to the channel of course. So I uh, hope you have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye.